Why is Israel determined to outlaw Palestinian human rights defenders and civic organizations more broadly? What is the impact of designating such organizations as terrorist entities, even if done in the absence of a shred of evidence? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute's interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Wain Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Raja Shahadeh. Raja Shahadeh is a Palestinian human rights activist and prolific author. He is a founding member of Al-Haq, the West Bank affiliate of the International Commission of Jurists, that is one of the six organizations currently being targeted by the Israeli government. His books include Occupier's Law, Palestinian Walks, Forays into a Vanishing Landscape, which was awarded the 2008 Orwell Prize, Where the Line is Drawn, which was a 2017 BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, and the forthcoming We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. He is also the author of numerous essays in Granta, the New York Review of Books, and many other publications. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. Thank you for hosting me. It's Thank a you. pleasure to be on this uh, host. Thank you, Raja. Um, I, I'd like to start by asking you if you could please explain the significance of Israel's designation of Al-Haq and five other Palestinian organizations as terrorist entities. Is it just a denunciation undertaken for propaganda purposes in order to delegitimize the work of these groups? Or is it an act that has the force of law and concrete consequences for these organizations, their staff, funders, and partners? Well, I must say that uh, I expected many things to happen to Al-Haq, but I never expected that as, as, as has happened for the past two weeks, I have been involved in defending an allegation against Al-Haq that it's a terrorist organization. I expected everything, but not such a drastic thing as declaring that the organization is a terrorist organization. And I think there's a lot, a big significance in that. And it's very telling of where things have come to, what things have come to that we reach this position. Uh, let me first explain uh, the uh, designation of terrorist organization for, for all these five uh, uh, organizations uh, uh, is under the uh, Israeli law, the counter-terrorism law, counter-terrorism law. And, and that's an Israeli law and that's an Israeli designation for these organizations. Now, uh, in order for the organizations to be uh, proscribed organizations in the West Bank, uh, they, they must be put on a list which is uh, in, in, in the, according to the Defense Emergency Regulations, which is a British mandate regulation. And, and, and this is because the West Bank is ruled separately by an Israeli military government. Yeah, the, the West Bank is, is a separate uh, Israeli government. Although uh, the, uh, under the Oslo agreements, uh, uh, NGOs came under uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, therefore Al-Haq is registered under the Palestinian Authority and is monitored by the Palestinian Authority. But Israel, of course, has declared in the Oslo agreements that anything to do with the uh, uh, security, with its own security, remains under its jurisdiction. Right. And so uh, uh, in order for, for these organizations to be proscribed, they have to be listed on that list. And, and this has not happened yet. Now, whether it would happen or not is, is, is now 
a question, but even if they don't happen, uh, Israel can still stop funding to, to come to them from Israeli banks and, and, and through uh, putting pressure on, on the banks in the West Bank. And, and so uh, the implications can be dire for these organizations. In addition to the fact that if, if the, uh, this designation continues, then uh, anybody affiliated with the organizations, mm -hmm. uh, supporting the organizations anyway, funding the organizations can be uh, deemed a terrorist and, and uh, have be tried under the counterterrorism law. And, and, and this would um, uh, comprise not just those directly working with Al-Haq at its headquarters in Ramallah, but potentially anyone who is um, associated with the organization. Absolutely, potentially anyone associated with the organization or, or expressing support for it can be deemed a terrorist and, and therefore uh, be penalized under the counterterrorism law. Right. Um, and, and why do you think Israel took such a radical measure? And why do you think it did so at this particular time? Um, in other words, what, what exactly, in your view, is the Israeli government seeking to achieve with this measure? Well, of course, what they're seeking to achieve is, is to stop these organizations from, from continuing with their work. And in the case of Al-Haq, the work has become very successful, and Al-Haq has made inroads into uh, things that are completely new in its agenda, such as supporting and giving evidence, uh, providing evidence for the International Criminal Court for its uh, case, uh, uh, preparation of its case against Israeli officials for uh, war crimes. And, and that Israel takes very seriously and has put a lot of money and a lot of diplomatic power and abilities to, to try to stop the uh, case in, in the International Criminal Court. And, and so far with American support, it seems to be succeeding. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I think uh, uh, I have uh, from practice, I think, realized that uh, one must not give attribute too much intelligence to, uh, and, and, uh, to, to the Israeli uh, way of dealing with, with these things. Uh, it, it, it so happens, for example, that uh, the uh, people involved are uh, deemed themselves to be so powerful and so uh, immune from any accountability that they can say anything and, and they feel they can get away with it. And they have been getting away with, with I, a lot. I believe it. I believe recently um, you wrote in The Guardian, um, they did it because they can. They did it because they can and because uh, as any uh, fascist regime uh, in the making, uh, the, the people in power uh, lose their head and, and uh, become uh, uh, unaware of, of the world around them. And they think they are capable of getting away with, with anything. And, and that is now the case with the Israeli uh, uh, officials and, and government uh, ministers. Uh, at the same time, it must be said that uh, uh, as far as the Israeli public is concerned, uh, of course, it, it, would, it would go along very well with them because over the years, uh, the Israeli public has been taught uh, racist things about Palestinians and, and the image of the Palestinian in, in Israel is so bad that they can believe anything about the Palestinians. And, and there is a racist element to this because uh, if you're a racist and you, 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 you don't think your enemy is capable of doing anything except as a cover for terrorism. So the, the, the claim that 
these organizations are covered for terrorism uh, goes along uh, well in Israel because they think that that uh, yes, the Palestinians are not really genuine human rights mm -hmm. activists and protectors of human rights because they, they, they can't be that because they are terrorists in, in their nature. Uh, and uh, of course, all along, uh, Israel has been trying to, to do this to Ilhaq. For example, when the organization was started early on, they said it's only a cover up for the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was then of course, an illegal organization. And then, uh, they continue to to uh, pin other uh, uh, allegations on the organization. And, and, and it's telling it's telling in this respect that you have Israeli human rights organizations that are doing broadly similar, if not identical work, who are who are free of such charges. Yeah, I must say, though, uh, that, for example, when the Beit Salem was accused mm -hmm. of treason, uh, many Israelis rallied behind them because mm -hmm. They are Israelis, and they realize, uh, you know, they 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 don't have prejudice and and racist attitudes towards the entire organization and its people and those behind it. Whereas that's not the case with the Palestinians. At the right. same time, it is true that so many Israelis and Israeli organizations have rallied behind uh, Al-Haq and and other organizations and are very ashamed of what their government is doing. And I've received many. Uh, letters and of support from many Israelis saying how ashamed they are of what their government is doing. So it's not across the board, but right. it is true that the education in Israel is uh, developing a, a generation of racists who are uh, so anti-Palestinian that they can believe anything about the Palestinians. And and you you were mentioning that um, several decades ago, um, Al-Haq was accused of being a front organization, um, not for the PFLP as it is now, but more broadly for, for the PLO, which brings me to my next question. And that's that, you know, this is not the first time that Al-Haq has encountered harassment by the Israeli authorities. So again, as someone who was involved with the organization um, from its very founding, could you perhaps um, recount um, how the authorities have previously sought to obstruct its work? It's very interesting to, 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 do, to do this exercise because it tells how Israel uh, views itself and its position in the world. In the beginning, and in 1981, we were holding a meeting, general meeting uh, in, in, in a small office, which Al-Haq uh, had uh, in Ramallah. And uh, our meetings were uh, continued until late at night. And uh, uh, there were many cars outside and uh, an Israeli Jeep came along and saw these many cars and got suspicious, came into the meeting, saw all these people assembled and immediately thought they are planning something, a terrorist attack or something like that. So uh, they uh, took some of the people in the meeting and beat them up and, and, and uh, behaved very badly and held us all until they contacted their superiors. And then we took, uh, uh, we made a complaint against these, uh, this affair. Now, as a result of the position of how, how Israelis felt at that time, uh, they took the uh, uh, matter seriously and investigated. Now, of course, investigation was so in, uh, terrible that it kept on going and going and going, and, and it was like a harassment to have this investigation. So at the end, we were pleading for them to stop the investigation because it was so much like a harassment 
against us to, to keep being called to, to try and uh, uh, identify who, who yeah. did it. And, and of course, we had no way of identifying who did it because the time had passed. And, and then later on, there were uh, uh, attempts at threatening me and, and, and uh, putting pressure on, on my father uh, about my activities and, and uh, uh, putting pressure on our law office and investigating it for tax and, and things like that. But then in, in 2002, uh, when the reinvasion of Ramallah took place, all the organizations uh, or many uh, offices, uh, official and, and non-official and civilian, were, were attacked by the uh, uh, army, except Al-Haq. So mm -hmm. Al-Haq uh, went uh, clear of that. And, and the idea that Al-Haq would be attacked in the way that it is now being attacked is only indicative of the standing of Israel in the world and its feeling of total uh, immutability and, and uh, impunity, impunity and yeah. uh, inability to, to be accounted by anyone for and, by anyone. And there were also, I believe, over the years, many arrests of, uh, of Al-Haq staff. And um, in one instance, in the late 1980s, during the first intifada, Al-Haq's current executive director, uh, Sha'wan Jabbarin, was placed under administrative detention. And more or less beaten to within an inch of his life to the extent that even members of the US Congress um, uh, felt the need to inquire with the Israeli authorities about this. And then defense minister um, Yitzhak Rabin saying, you know, only enough violence was used um, to persuade him to accept uh, detention. Um, and um, uh, so many Al-Haq field researchers and others have ended up in prison always without charge or trial over the years, I believe. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, when, when the Ansar III prison, the, the desert prison was opened, the first to, to be uh, held up there were Al-Haq people. And I remember then uh, visiting them uh, in, in that prison. And all, all throughout, Al-Haq people, uh, field workers, and, and as you say, the director of Al-Haq, prison director, were uh, arrested and, and detained and tortured and, uh, and, and asked about their work with Al-Haq, and, and this was uh, one of the major uh, accusations against them. And I believe um, one, another uh, um, board member, uh, co-founder of Al-Haq, Charles Shamas, that the Israelis also spent several years trying to um, deport him uh, from the occupied territory. Absolutely, that's absolutely true, absolutely yeah. true. And, and do you think that um, Al-Haq's affiliation with the International Commission of Jurists provided some measure of, uh, of protection over the years, but that, as you say, Israel's um, feeling of um, invincibility and impunity has now um, let all restraints loose? You know, we, in the beginning, the reason, the main reason why we affiliated with the International Commission of Jurists was exactly to provide us with protection. And it did for a long time. And, and um, perhaps it continues to, in a, in a way. Uh, but uh, and now Israel is uh, unconcerned with, with the most important and active human rights organizations internationally. So, for example, they uh, 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 deported. They deport, yeah. Omar Shakir, uh, who, who is from uh, Human Rights Watch. Right. And, and however much there was an attempt to, uh, uh, to stop that action, it, it wasn't successful. And then World Vision, 
was also uh, accused of uh, fund, uh, spending money for, for Hamas and they, they act and ended up uh, withdrawing from their work in Gaza, which was very important work, of course. Yeah. And, and it was never proven, of course. Right. So and over the years, uh, the uh, protection of uh, human rights organizations and human rights in general has, has been eroding because Israel is less and less concerned with human rights and with, with, the, with its image because it feels it can say anything. The minute it says security and terrorism, then this uh, works well for it and, and everybody is silent and they feel this is a way out for it. I must say that uh, the work of the uh, uh, High Court of Justice in this case has, 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 not, has not helped because- This is the Israeli Supreme Court. Israeli Supreme Court, because mm -hmm. in the beginning, we uh, at Al-Haq, for example, and, and many organizations around the world thought that as long as there is a possibility of appeal to the uh, Israeli High Court of Justice, then everything would be all right because there would be somebody who would uh, 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 check, act as check. a check on the authorities. Act, act as a check on the authorities. But uh, as David Kretschmer has shown in his book, uh, uh, Occupied, uh, what's the name of the book? Uh, Occupation of Justice, mm -hmm. uh, recently published uh, by Oxford University Press. Uh, uh, the Israeli High Court of Justice has failed and failed and failed again and again and again in, in stopping Israeli uh, excessive actions in, in all spheres in, in, in the work on the West Bank. Well, one could even say it's been an, an enabling institution uh, uh, for the occupation. But, uh, but I'd also like to ask you, I mean, you, you gave um, uh, an explanation of Israeli impunity, but would it also um, uh, be appropriate to say that this latest designation is, in a sense, a backhanded compliment because Al-Haq and, and the human rights community in general, um, its, its views and, and reports on Israel are beginning to be taken much more seriously than in years past. You mentioned the International Criminal Court and, and um, other cases, and that perhaps Israel also feels more threatened um, by the activism of these organizations and their achievements um, than it has previously. It's possible to say that, yes. And, and I'm sure that is a factor in, in, in Israeli thinking. Uh, however, the danger of, of succeeding in this action is also great because now there is an organization which is in Finland which mm -hmm. uh, is a Finnish uh, Christian missionary group called FELM, mm -hmm. which has uh, uh, decided not to fund uh, DCI, Defense of Children International Palestine, because of the Israeli designation of that organization as a terrorist organization. And they say, although we do not, did not receive convincing evidence, and yet we are worried about jeopardizing our work elsewhere by funding this organization. So, here you have a weakness on the part of the Finnish organization, which hopefully will not be followed by others because others might be more uh, uh, confident and 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 and. Uh, right. So so the, so the, this Finnish organization is in effect saying we don't take the allegations seriously, 
but they represent a threat to our global operations. And so therefore, we're going to um, uh, respond, respond as if they're true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a way, uh, the, the good thing also, you, you mentioned about uh, the possibility that the Haq, because of its uh, confident achievements in, 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 uh, in documenting and, and yeah. fighting human rights. Uh, the other thing could be that it could be a, a chance to uh, check on the uh, possibility of Europeans supporting uh, the, the NGOs and, and the civil society in the occupied territories, which they've always been speaking about and saying that we will support them and, and we uh, th think they're very important for democracy and so on. So this is a chance to see whether they will be up to their word and, and give the real support by, by uh, refusing to accept the Israeli designation of these organizations as terrorists. Well, I I, for one, won't be holding my breath, but it does bring me um, uh, to my next question. You've um, mentioned this Finnish organization earlier. You mentioned the support you've been getting um, from Israeli organizations. Uh, and and what, is in, uh, what so far has been your um, assessment of the foreign response to the Israeli designation? Um, and what impact do you think it will have concretely? Um, and, more specifically, do you think this measure can be reversed? And what do you think would be required to achieve such a reversal? Well, it, it, at this point, the, the issue is whether it would be uh, followed by a designation of uh, these organizations as prescribed organizations in the list of prescribed organizations according to the events emergency regulations. Whether this will be done or not is going to be the question because even if they don't, uh, reverse the decision in Israel uh, if they don't follow it up with this uh, order in, from the military commander of the West Bank, then it will be uh, not operative in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. and, and so... I, be I believe um, uh, we've lost your... Be, in a way, the success of the uh, campaign uh, in uh, Raja, if I can interrupt you, I believe um, we're experiencing technical issue. Um, ah, now you're back. Hmm. Can you hear me fine? I can hear you, yeah. Okay, great. I, I, I think we missed... Um, uh, the second half of your previous uh, answer, you froze, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, I said that if the uh, uh, the declaration of terrorist organization is not followed by an order from the military commander of the West Bank, then mm -hmm. it would be as a, a sort of retraction of the right. full impact and full plan of the Israelis to designate the uh, organizations as terrorists, and and this would be a sort of backing up backing uh, off uh, uh, from uh, from that uh, path yes. and yeah. and that would be in an indication of the impact of international organizations and and the media and the uh, and the american popul uh, jewish population in, in in the united states which has also been very active against such a designation and and it might uh, reverse uh, in effect reverse the the order so, so that is what we are, should be looking for now. 
But I've but it struck me that um, uh, many governments, at least, I mean, um, other human rights organizations and activists have been much more vocal. But the general response from governments seems to be, on the one hand, um, we haven't really received any evidence, let alone convincing evidence, from the Israeli authorities, and we're waiting um, to hear uh, to hear from them further. But at the same time, these same governments have declined to say um, that this measure should either be reversed or will be opposed unless and until uh, such uh, evidence of the direct involvement of these organizations in, uh, in armed activities is forthcoming. Well, it's always, uh, the, uh, uh, it's always on the Palestinians to prove otherwise. Presumption uh, of guilt. Presumption of guilt on the Palestinian side is always the strongest. So mm -hmm. it's, it is to be expected. But, uh, but the fact that they are saying we have not received convincing evidence is mm -hmm. in a way uh, indicating that they are uh, uh, skeptical of the Israeli position and, and will not act on it. So right. in, in this context, the equivalent of a severe condemnation. <laughs> Well, yeah, because we know how Israel's standing is and how uh, politicians in, in the European scene and the American scene right. respond when it, uh, the matter involves Israel. Right. Um, I, to, to perhaps um, uh, discuss this issue more broadly, uh, Raja, one of the main themes of your first book, Occupier's Law, published in 1985, is a massive discrepancy between how Israel governs Israeli Jews on the one hand and rules Palestinians in the occupied territories in the other. Against this background, how did you assess the recent reports by leading Israeli interna and, and international human rights organizations designating Israel as, in the words of B'Tselem, a Jewish supremacist regime, or as um, Human Rights Watch uh, called it, an apartheid state? You know, I have from the early, early days, from the late 70s and early 80s, when I was following the developments in the legal sphere of what Israel was doing uh, in the occupied territories of changing the laws and, and building the settlements and in, enabling the settlements and creating a, a dual system of, of government for people in the West Bank, one for the uh, Palestinian Arabs and another for Israeli Jews. I was thinking that there's no way that this can lead to anything except apartheid. And in fact, I, I used to say that, and, and but could not publish it because at that time you couldn't get away with publishing anything of this sort. But it was clear to me, and, and in, in uh, Occupy, Occupy, Occupier's Law of 1985, which was published in 1985, mm -hmm. I uh, presented the dual system of uh, courts and, and, and uh, uh, planning, land use planning and other Spheres. It's a theme that runs throughout the book. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And, and so uh, for me, it has been clear from the very beginning that this is where it's going to, leading to. And then I remember being told by somebody who, who was in the know and who accompanied Sharon uh, at that time, the Minister of Agriculture, I think, in, yes. in the early 80s uh, to South Africa. And he was presented with a, a report about the South African government and so on. And he said, no, I don't want to know anything about it. I want to know about the system of apartheid in South Africa. And why was that? Because he was planning 
the same system for the West Bank and Gaza. It was a study and visit. It was a study visit for him, and he, he had no question that this is what it will lead to in the West Bank and Gaza. And, and, and yet, the, the disappointing thing is that when the negotiations in Oslo took place, there was no attempt by the PLO to look at the system and see how it can be violated, how they can stop it from continuing. And, and, and it was possible to do that with, with some uh, changes in, in the agreement or some uh, terms in the agreement that would make it such a, a process, if not more difficult, if not impossible, more difficult. But there was absolutely no attempt at, at dealing with that. And, and the idea was that once we come as a PLO to the occupied territories, then we can uh, ignore and delete and, and uh, revoke all the military orders and bring the situation back to where, where it was in 67, which is of course impossible because mm -hmm. Israel had a plan and, uh, and, and it had a plan of how to continue with that after the Oslo agreements and after the PA, Palestinian Authority came into being. And this is exactly what happened. And um, uh, finally, Raja, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question about how Israel continues to apply um, decrees in the occupied territories that derive from British mandatory legislation, such as the 1945 defense emergency regulations that you mentioned uh, previously. Your father, who was also a lawyer, in fact, challenged the applicability of these regulations in the Israeli Supreme Court um, during the early years of uh, of the occupation. And I believe that this theme also features in your upcoming book, um, We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. Yes, my father uh, had uh, was asked to, I think it was a deportation case and the deportation mm -hmm. was taking place in accordance with the provisions of the defense emergency regulations. And in his defense, he, he presented an affidavit, a statement under oath to the high court explaining how these defensive regulations were in fact re repealed under Jordan and replaced by its own defense emergency regulations, which, did, which were different from these ones that the British had done. But of course, the High Court did not accept this. And, and he had, throughout his career as a lawyer, always took cases which were innovative and which were important. For example, he took the case of the uh, blocked accounts in 1954. Uh, which was the, the only the first and only case that succeeded in unblocking the accounts of the refugees which were held in, in banks such as the Arab Bank and such as Barclays Bank, which were in uh, the branches in, in, in what became Israel and, and all the money there held by Israel and, and these banks refusing to give back the money to the Palestinians who were destitute, uh, saying that it is now uh, enemy uh, property, and, and he raised the case against Israel at that time and succeeded in unblocking these accounts. And, and, and this is during the of, 1950s. Yeah, during the uh, 54. And yeah, this yeah. is one of the uh, uh, cases that I speak about in this upcoming book, uh, We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. It's only well, one of many. Yeah, well, we're very much uh, looking forward to the publication of uh of your next book. And in the meantime, we'll keep uh, following this case of Israel's latest initiative to criminalize Palestinian human rights activism. Uh, Rajesh Hade, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time uh, 
to speak to us on connections. And um, just as a, as a final note, um, please don't forget to join us for our next episode, um, next uh, Wednesday, 9th of November, where we'll be hosting Alison Glick and Nora Lester-Murad. Thank you very much. Thank you.